good to see everyone this morning. I trust you're having an enjoyable weekend. You can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 for our scripture reading this morning. There was a reminder in the bulletin this week to keep family camp out in view. We have that coming up in uh, the weekend of August 18th and, and uh, if you're thinking of staying and don't have a site yet, let, let me know. Otherwise, keep those dates open. Come to stay. Come overnight. Come for the day. But come to enjoy a good time of fellowship and time of God's word together. It's always such an encouraging and refreshing weekend together. We also have coming up here in a couple weeks, a few weeks away, our uh, children's camp up in northern Minnesota. Uh, last couple weeks of July, rolling into the beginning of August. Pray for that outreach as well and for myself I'll be speaking at senior camp so I appreciate your prayers for that as well. First Peter chapter 1 just a few verses here to get us started this morning starting in verse 17 where it says and if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he came in the humanity in order to rescue us. He came for us. He came to redeem us, to purchase our salvation and our freedom at the cross. And we're so thankful for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that as an almighty God, an all-knowing God, an all-powerful God, a God who transcends his creation, you are a personal and loving God, a caring God, that you are with us always and that you have provided for our, our needs and especially our need for, for, for the forgiveness of sins. You provided for us the assurance of eternal life and with that salvation, you promise us a friend in the Lord Jesus Christ, a friend who sticks closer than a brother, a friend who's with us at all times, a friend who would walk with us and guide us through life. And so, Father, we're thankful for that. And we pray this morning as we gather that we would gather not only in worship and in your praise, but that you quiet our hearts to be ready to hear your word, to, be, to see the th wonderful things you might teach us this morning about our Savior and all that you've afforded for us in him. And so, Father, be our teacher and guide today. And may we, may we take seriously, we take to heart the things we learn. May our lives be based not upon our traditions received from our fathers, but may our lives be based upon, thus saith the Lord. And so today we hunger for your word, Father, to be taught. And may we each day learn to live your word out in our daily lives. And Father, we pray for those who might be away from us today. We just pray for them, that you'd watch over them, whatever, and whatever they're, wherever they're at, that you'd draw them to yourself as well. And we pray as your word goes out across our nation and world, Father, that your children would take it to heart. Father, that we would know what it means to draw near to you, to walk with you, to be your witness. And Father, we pray for boldness as well. Father, we all need boldness. We need to have a concern for those around us and a boldness to speak up, to share with people their, great, their greatest need, and that's a need of salvation, a need of a Savior. And so embolden us, Father, and for those in our lives that we are witnessing to, those we're concerned about, those who are heading for a crisis eternity, we pray that you'd work in their hearts. We lay them before you this morning, Father, and trust you will do a mighty work there as well. 
Father, we pray, too, for our missionaries. Thank you for the opportunity to, to spread our ministry of the gospel throughout the world, extended through our missionaries. We pray for each one. You would prosper their work. Use your, use your word in a mighty way to communicate once again the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we're thankful that we could gather together even today, Father, to hear your word. We pray that you would open our understanding now for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. You turn next in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We began speaking, looking last week at the concept of spiritual freedom. And we started in the passage in John chapter 8, that well-known verse that's, that states that the truth shall make you free. And at the end of that passage, it says, If the Son shall make you free, you shall but free, be free indeed. And at that time, the the Jews of, the, of Jesus' day were looking for political freedom. Yet Jesus, in that passage, addresses, you can tell from the context, their spiritual freedom. But they were under the bondage of Rome, and they were looking for political freedom, and that was their focus. And they didn't want to be told what was wrong with their personal lives. They just simply wanted to have their freedom back. And, you know, Much of the focus of this country today, even Christians who get caught up so much in, 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 in politics and, and political freedom and forget that, True freedom begins with a relationship with Christ. And man's greatest need is not political freedom. It's not living in a free country, as wonderful and as great as that is. It is to be freed from the condemnation and effects of sin in our lives. And last week, we, we looked at the fact that our God is a God of victory, of life and power. We played for you a song that our God never loses. He always wins. He's a victorious, powerful God. And through the gospel, we find that rescue, don't we? Man's rescue from sin. And the issue with the world today is, is we go merrily along our way uh, unaware of, oblivious to the fact that God describes mankind as being under sin. That's what the term the Bible needs. We're under the condemnation and effects of sin. We live in a world cursed by sin, and thus sin permeates our complete existence. And we fail to see that. And that we fail to see that when God said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat that fruit, you're going to surely die. And we know they didn't tip over like Snow White. They didn't die physically that moment, but they began to die physically. But the death they did, they did experience that moment was spiritual death, death to God, the capacity to relate to God, enjoy God, to follow God, to live, live, with God, live for God, and to walk in his ways. They died to God. And Romans 5 goes on to t tell us that through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And that death is passed on all men, for all have sinned. And thus God describes all of us as being dead in sin, dead to God, void of the capacity to live righteously. We're under its condemnation. The soul that sinneth it shall die. The wages of sin is death, and so on. And, and mankind is born into this life separated from his God because we're born, just like great-grandpappy Adam, sinners. Sinners that are rebellious against, against God's instructions, sinners that live independently from his guide in our lives. And so the Bible describes our condition as being condemned and also as being enslaved because of sin within, because sin also permeates our being. And when Adam chose to sin, he rebelled against God's word. He made a decision independent from God, and those two things describe the nature of sin. It's because in our own selves, we want to do our own thing, run our own lives, go our own way, and we are independently rebellious against God. 
you know, in that passage in John chapter 8 where Jesus describes freedom, he, 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 just, he tells those listening to him, who are very religious folks, by the way, because they thought good works would take care of their sin problem in their lives. Jesus told, told them that they were enslaved to sin. And they answered him like this. He says, we are Abraham's descendants that never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we will be made free? They didn't understand their, their bondage either. And Jesus answered them, most certainly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And Jesus points out the fact that the man's real bondage isn't political, it is spiritual, it is enslaved to sin, it is because we have a, a propensity within to sin. We like the bad stuff in life. And we know the Bible teaches us that Satan has written the menu of this world, and that menu is full of stuff that's bad for us, destructive behaviors, things that decisions made independent from God. And we are enslaved to that because we have a nature that loves that. If you don't think that's true, just look around you at the problem with addictions. You know, there are people that we look at that have a problems with addictive behavior, but all of us have problems with habitual sin. It just depends what category you want to drop it into. And when you look at addictions, we find their addictions grip people so tightly that you can't find escape within themselves because they have a, a, a propensity to sin within that loves the bad stuff, and those addictions, those addictions are many, aren't they? Whether they're alcohol and substance abuse, pornography, anger issues, and, and abusive behavior. In the area of money, you have materialism and gambling. And these are just a few of the many destructive behaviors that mankind becomes a slave to, and we don't have the power to escape, do we? And even though the addicted may hate what they're doing, they may hate themselves for what they're doing, they're often powerless to escape their grip. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. In 1 John 2, verses, verses 15 through 17, it tells us, do not love the world. That is the world system, Satan's menu, or the things in the world. If, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, there's two kinds of loves. You can love what Satan offers. All that appeals to the lust of our flesh or what God offers. And he goes on to say, for all that is in the world, all the world has to offer is the lust of the flesh, sensual lust, the lust of the eyes, materialistic type lust, and the pride of life, arrogance and pride and approbation lust. And these are not of the Father, but the, they're of the world. And so that's how God describes mankind. That's just who we are. You know, in some ways, for some people, that's a relief because we don't sometimes understand, why do I do the things I do? Why can't I beat, beat it? Why can't I overcome? And it's because we have a nature that has a longing for stuff that is not good for us in our lives. If you, and here in Romans chapter 7, what we find here is a Paul's testimony in regards to his struggle with sin in his life, his inability to, to, to be, have the power within himself to beat it, to beat those things that, were, that he hated. And he comes to the conclusion in verse 21, if you, if you look there in Romans chapter 7, he says, I find them out then a law, that is a principle, something fixed, that evil is present with me even when I want to do good, the one who wills to do good. I find a law, even though I want to do the right thing, and that's many in, that are enslaved in destructive behavior don't want to do. They want to escape. But Paul says, I find a principle that evil is present with me. That's the description of me. That's, our, that's what our nature is like. Evil is present with me. And he goes on to say, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. He was a believer. He loved God's word. 
But I see another law, there's that same law, in my members, but it's warring against the law of my mind and brings me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. He says, I'm, ca I'm in captivity, I'm in bondage to those things that I know aren't good for me. In verse 24, he comes to this conclusion, O wretched man that I am. Now this is a believer talking, actually. O wretched man that I am. He sees that in his flesh dwells no good thing, according to verse 18. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And what we find, there's hope. Verse 25, I thank God, there's hope. There's hope for me, <laughs> the hopeless one. There's hope for me. But it's not in myself. And that's, where we, that's what we have to learn, isn't it? The world directs people to self-help programs to kick the habit, so to speak. And Paul says, it's just not in me. Verse 3 of chapter 8 says, I'm weak in the flesh. But verse 25 here says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where I'm going to find help and hope. So then, with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And so deliverance from that enslaving power of sin is found in Jesus Christ. So this week, as we consider freedom, last week we considered freedom from the condemnation of sin, the fact that Jesus paid it all on the cross so that we could be freed from the penalty of sin, that guilt that God laid upon, that the law laid upon us because we could not keep the Ten Commandments. We can't do good works good enough to get to heaven. But Jesus was good enough to get us to heaven, wasn't he? He paid it all on the cross in order to redeem us and rescue us and to free us from that penalty. Well, this week we're going to look at what God has provided for our freedom in Christ. What did Paul mean when he said, through Jesus Christ our Lord? What does that entail in the Bible to enjoy the freedom from the grip of sin in our hearts and lives? 2 Timothy 1.10, we mentioned this last week, says, But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so we're going to look this week, what does it mean to be free indeed? That's what Jesus said. The Son's going to make you free. You're going to be free indeed. Do we live like those who are free indeed? And if you go back to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to look at four things this morning. The first thing we're going to look at is the basis of our freedom. And Romans 6 describes that, doesn't it? And we're just going to pick it up in verse 6. We could spend weeks in this chapter, but I won't, we won't do that at this point. But verse 6 of Romans 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man, that's our flesh, that's that propensity to sin, that's that law of evil present with me, the old man was crucified with him. That that body of sin, sin in the singular, referring to that sin nature that I have, might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. And so what the Bible describes here, in our salvation, when we become identified with Christ, we get to experience his victory over sin. The power of sin has been broken, we might say. It's like being in, in, a, in a jail cell. And we have this realm in this jail cell that we, that we live in. It's called that, the natural life. And we can't escape it. No matter how hard we claw at the walls or, or tear at the bars, we can't escape it. Then Jesus comes and throws the door open. That's what the cross accomplished. It broke the power of sin. He opened the door and provided for us freedom. In fact, verse 8 tells us here, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. And so we find that not only are we identified with him in his death, but also in his resurrection. We live with him. We can enjoy the new life we have in Christ. And in verse 9, it tells us, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, 
Death no longer has dominion over him, for in that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now I find it interesting in those, these two verses that the writer uses the term once for all, because it reminds me of the discussion of our eternal salvation mentioned in Hebrews 10, 9 and 10, where the writer repeatedly uses the term once. Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever, in both accounts referring to the fact that, that the power and penalty of sin has been settled once and for all and forever. It's through one offering that Jesus offered the satisfactory payment of our sins. Hebrews 10.10 says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. And you and I rest on that fact. If you're a believer here this morning, it's because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you rest in what he's accomplished. The debt has been paid. Sins have been taken care of. God extends to you forgiveness of sins if you respond to him in faith. And we rest in that, in that provision that God provided in his grace freely. It's something we rest in because there was a once and for all and forever payment for sins. Well, what Romans 6 is telling us, that when it comes to our bondage to sin and our daily lives, there's been, a, there's been something that's been settled once and for all and forever. It's our freedom. Our, we no longer have to serve sin. It goes on, goes on to say. Look at verse 11. Likewise, also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what we have here in this chapter is our emancipation from sin, our freedom that has been declared. You know, I sometimes compare this chapter to the Emancipation Proclamation. And when Abraham Lincoln declared the slaves free, they were free. That very moment, signed in the law, they were free. They may not have enjoyed their freedom immediately. Some may have never claimed that freedom. But it was legally theirs. And that's what God is saying here. You practically have been, because of your identification with Christ as a Christian, <coughs> excuse me, have been set free from sin. You no longer have to be slaves of sin. And what that means is that when there's times in our lives when we are dealing with besetting sins, habitual sins, addictive sins, one of the first things we have to go back to is the foundation of our salvation. You know what? I don't have to serve sin. I can live like a free person. That's, the, that's where it starts. Jesus secured my freedom through the cross. And therefore, it tells us here, simply live in light of it. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. That is, you're separated from its power, its influence in your lives. And it goes on to say, don't let sin, verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. It doesn't have to reign anymore. It doesn't have to control you anymore. Now that might be a lifelong process of growth to realize this, just like it often took the slaves years to fully capture and realize and enjoy their freedom. But we are told to don't let it reign. They should obey it in its lust. And verse 13 tells us a little bit how. And present, do not present yourself members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. Isn't that wonderful? Alive from the dead. We have new life in Christ, and we are, our members, our bodies, our being, our person is now free to serve Christ. Well, in this passage, we see a reference. If you want to turn next over to the book of Ephesians, we'll stop at chapter 2. We see a reference to this, this principle of new life. Because the second thing we're going to consider this morning is the fact that God has given us in order to enjoy this freedom. He's, he's provided for us. He's not only declared us free, but he's provided for our freedom. And one of those things he's provided is a new capacity called the new man. Ephesians 2.1 says this, And you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. 
Being made alive means, means to be born again. We use that term, born from above. It's a spiritual birth. When Adam and Eve died to God, they became sinners. They, they, they died to God. They didn't have the capacity any longer to fellowship with God and enjoy God. We, we describe them as being spiritually dead. That is dead to God in their relationship. But in Christ, that's resolved. We find in Christ re, re, salvation, redemption, and regeneration. You has he made alive. You see, the problem with the unsaved is they do not have the capacity to live righteously. That is only done in the power of God, by the person of God, in the life of God. And that's why to try to teach the Bible to the unsaved is fruitless. Because they'll be just like Paul. He says, I can't find in me the ability to change. Now you teach them the gospel, because that's where it starts. They need to become a son of God before they can live like a son of God. So you do teach them the gospel, but you don't teach them how to live the Christian life. You might stand for principles of righteousness, but we recognize the concept that apart from Christ, they are spiritually dead to God. They do not have capacity, spiritual capacity. Back in John chapter 8, if you read the extent of that passage, Jesus tells those he's listening to, the religious do-gooders, those who thought you got to heaven by good works, he says, you know, you, you can't understand this because my word has no place in you, he tells them. They don't have the capacity to understand the things of God. That's why before you were a Christian, spiritual truths were, were confusing. They meant nothing. You try to read the Bible and you don't get very far, do you? Because it means nothing. But the Spirit of God comes, you're made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And so God has given us the capacity of what we call the new man, the new life. We have the life of God within. Let's go over to chapter 4 here, if you would, where this is described a little further. Let's go ahead and start with verse 17, and we'll catch the contrast. Where he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles, we could say the rest of the unsaved, walk in the futility or vanity or emptiness of their mind. Having their understanding darkened, they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, that's just a God-written God description of the unsaved. This isn't meant to be derogatory. It's meant to be reality. That's just where mankind is apart from God's intervention through the cross. Verse 20 says to these believers, you have not so learned Christ. And what this is is a wake-up call to them. You have not learned Christ. You ought not to be living like the unsaved living. You get into chapter 5, it reminds us of that, to wake up and arise from the dead, that you and I are to be walking in, in the life of God, a God of life and victory and power and righteousness. We're to, be, we're to live in that. That's God's expectation. That should be normal for the Christians. But so many of us just get by in the Christian life by... You know, kind of being Christian mugwumps with our mug on one side of the fence and our wump on the other side of the fence, and we never really get serious about Christ, about what does it really mean. These are what God has provided. You know, when we heard the gospel, we grabbed onto it. We cling to the cross, we sing, because Jesus paid it all. But do we cling to the cross and God's provisions and grace in order to live a life that God intended? And we sometimes trade in the, the, the fruitfulness and the abundance of a life of victory and power and joy and peace for a life of normalcy, which isn't Christian normal, but it's the world's normal. Where, you know, we go to church and we do a few good religious things, but are we drawn near to him? Well, verse 20 says, you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard 
and have been taught by him. That means you've heard the gospel, you've been taught by Jesus, the truth is in Jesus, that's where we find it. And here's what he tells us, that you put off concerning your former conduct. That old man, there it is again, appears on this page too, doesn't it? The old life, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. Notice there's a growth in the old man, it gets worse and worse, not better and better. See, God doesn't remodel the old life. He died for it. He doesn't remodel your old man, he replaces it. And he goes on to say, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which is created to, according to God in righteousness and true holiness. And so we have this concept of putting off and putting on just like you would a garment, a coat, a robe, or whatever. It's a choice we make. Which realm are we going to live in? Are we going to content with the old, or are we going to begin to search out and enjoy the life of the new, the new life we have in Christ, the new capacity. See, God has given us a new capacity. It's called here the new man. It's created according to God. In Colossians, it said it's created in the image of God. And isn't that interesting? Because way back in Genesis, we find that man was created in the image of God. That image was lost because of sin. It is restored in regeneration and new life we have in Christ. We have a new man that's created in his image, and we have the privilege of walking in that. And it's an amazing thing that God can take sinners and not only save them and cleanse them and forgive them, but he can renew them and give us the capacity and ability to walk in the new life we have in Christ. We have the new man. And so we have freedom declared, the emancipation, freedom from the bondage of sin and life, and we have a provision of God, the capacity to walk in newness of life. Well, let's turn next to John chapter 8, because another thing God has done for us is not only given us capacity, but he's provided for us resources to live for him. And one of the most important ones, and this is basic to us, but it's something we often forget, is, is simply the word of God. It's the Bible, isn't it? It's a Bible which is a living book, a powerful book. It changes lives. It, it lightens our days. In John 8, we're told in our base passage, but let's start with verse 31 here in John chapter 8. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And so we have a reference here to the truth of God, the Bible. Now, it's interesting that the, some, some in the world have adopted verse 32. You hear it everywhere. The truth shall make you free. You hear people spit it out, ungodly people, unsaved people, irreligious people, but they know this phrase, the truth shall make you free. What do they think about when they say that? What is the truth? That's what I want to ask them. Is it your truth, my truth, someone else's truth? Because that's the Bible's, excuse me, the world's view of truth today, that it's relative, that it's personal. And as long as you have, as long as you walk in your own truth, you're okay. <laughs> that's not what God says. You don't have your own truth, and I don't have my own truth. In fact, that's completely illogical, because truth is truth, period, isn't it? It's either true or it's not, period. And you and I don't get the right to determine what is true, because if we did, we'd, we'd have chaos, really, because you and I might respect the fact that murder is wrong, but you might go across the world where someone else says, my truth says murder is okay. I can murder, and I can steal, and I can take everything you have. And you might find that somewhere, places in the earth. But you couldn't condemn them, because that's their truth. And so that thought is absolutely ridiculous, illogical, and chaotic. We have truth because there's one truth giver. We have laws because there's one lawgiver, and God has established that in his consciousness in our hearts. And, and that's what Jesus says here. 
He defines what truth is. They forget this verse. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide, abide in my word. That's the truth. It's my word. They disconnect, verse 31 and 32, but when you connect them in context, you find out that the truth that sets you free is my word, Jesus' word. It's Jesus' truth, isn't it? That can free us in our lives. And in the Bible, we find truths to live by, truths that empower us, truths, truths that direct us and instruct us. And the truths of the Lord Jesus set us free from the enslavement of sin. It's just what the Bible says. You'll notice he goes on here and says, and we read this already, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have been in bondage to anyone. How can you say that you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. But a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. He's referring to a right relationship. To the truth, that the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Free indeed. Free, freedom indeed is found in the word of God. And that's stresses for us, once again, the importance of the intake of the Word of God. Many Christians, when they struggle in their lives and they find, they, they, you know, they experience those besetting sins, habitual sins, apathy, and, and whatever in their lives, and they think, what's wrong? And they often think they've got to find some new gizmo, spiritual gadget, or experience to jack them up, revive them. And the Bible keeps it very basic, doesn't it? Well, it starts with the basis of our salvation, we have been set free. Let's reckon upon that. The second thing it refers to, then, is we have a new capacity. It's, it's, it's found in a new life we have in Christ. And the third thing is, well, how's our relationship with the Bible? How many verses do we know by heart? How many principles have we allowed the Spirit of God to ingrain into our lives? How often do we read it, expose ourselves to it? How's our hunger for it? Do we come to church hungering for the truth of God? I, you know, I was always amazed years ago when I taught a prison Bible study and I would teach for at least an hour and 45 minutes. I had a two hour period I had to escape before they locked the doors on me at noon. And uh, so I had to quit eventually. Otherwise I'd probably keep going because the guys would say, oh, you're done already? There was a hunger for the truth of God's word. And, that's, and, and, and that, should, that should depict the believer. There should be that kind of hunger for the truth of God because of the truth of God that sets us free. You see, the implication in this passage is that the false truths of the world enslave us. And you got one set of truths to live by or another. Satan's truth, the world's truth. Satan is a thief. He kills, he steals, he destroys. Or you have Jesus' truth. That's our choice. We might think we're independent and have our own truth, but that's because Satan knows how to manipulate us into thinking we're being independent when we're really dependent upon the garbage he feeds us. Or we can have the truth of God, which secures for us righteousness and right living. That's what God designed us for. That's freedom, by the way. People think Christians are just, you know, they're just enslaved to religious ritual and habit. They've got to go to church all the time, read that Bible all the time, and do all those things all the time. And then realize that true freedom is found in functioning as we're designed. It's functioning as God designed us to reflect his person and his glory and his image, to live right. That's relaxing. And I like to illustrate it sometimes when you're going down the road, and I, and I don't mean to pick on speed limits because I don't, because if I do, I'm picking on myself in all honesty. But if you're driving 55 and see a cop go by, you don't even think about it. You just relax and you keep driving. The sun's Nice sunny days. I like windows down when I can, the wind blowing through, and you know, and um, 
But if you're doing 60, 65, 70, 75, like some of my kids, 80, 85, uh, you, what do you do? <gasps> you panic. There's no rest in that moment, is there? And that just illustrates what it means to live right. There's rest. And there's true fulfillment and happiness when we are right before God, because that's much more important than we are before the police, isn't it? Because it starts with our relationship with God. That's what it means to be free. Free to live as we ought, not as we want, by the way. We'll be talking more about that next time. And so the Bible is, is more than just a story of nice things, good advice. It's a book of divine truth that in, is intended to indeed bring us freedom in our lives to live as God designed. It's a living and powerful book, and when heated, it produces an abundant life. Flip with me next, if you go to Romans chapter 8, the fourth thing, the other resource God has provided for us, which works closely with this, is the Holy Spirit. And we understand this, that God has given us the Spirit to empower us. See, we have capacity to new birth. We have Christ living within but the Spirit of God is given to us to empower us. In Romans, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, when, you re, when the Spirit of God comes, he, he, He's going to empower you. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He's, the, he's one who teaches us God's Word, who enables us to live God's Word. He enables us to have victory. Galatians 5, 16, walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Well, here in Romans chapter 8, remember this just fell on the heels of verse 25, which we looked at earlier. My freedom is found through Jesus Christ and what he's provided for me. And what he's provided for me in his grace is, is freedom from the bondage of sin. He's provided for me a new capacity in the new birth. He's given me his word to, to provide power and direction and victory in my life. And thirdly, he's given us his spirit. Verse Chapter 1, verse 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I like that verse because it's a note of security while we... Consider the practical Christian life. Verse 2 says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So here, here we find another law. Remember we saw a law back there in chapter 7. Evil is present with me. Here we find another law for the believer. Another principle. Another dynamic. It's called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He's the one who's made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. And there's a whole message in that verse alone, but it, what it tells us is that those who thought the Ten Commandments was a means of righteousness find out that there's no power in the Ten Commandments. Not that God's law is wrong. Romans 7 tells us the law is holy, righteous, and good. But the fact is, we don't have the power to keep it in our own, do we? It's weak through the flesh. And so verse 3 goes on to say, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's a, Roman, that's a reference back to Romans 6. He condemned sin in the flesh. He broke the power of sin. That in turn, the righteousness requirement of the law, which represents God's word, God's holiness, God's standards, though a specific reference to the Ten Commandments, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And I always said the key in this words in this verse is the two little words, in us. Because it doesn't say by us. Big difference, isn't it? In us, not by us. And that but in us is fulfilled who walk according to the Spirit. And so we're introducing this chapter to the power of the Spirit of God who God's given to us. He indwells us. We know that when we trust Christ as Savior, the Spirit of God comes within to be our teacher, our guide, and to provide power. 
And verse 5 gets to the practical side of it. For those who live according to the flesh, that's their old man, they set their mind on the things of the flesh because that's what the flesh likes. You know, we like to be occupied with worldly things, whatever our interests are and our appetites are. And I always challenge myself of how I'm going to start my day, you know, with the Cabela's catalog or the Psalms. Big difference. Not that I want to have a legalistic standard, but you get the point. Where are we going to set our mind for the day? This is practical stuff. And what you're occupied with is what you're going to live in life, what your focus is. So you set, where do you set your mind? That's the idea. Now this has some, might someone say, well, how do I set my mind? Well, it's a mental thing, isn't it? Verse 6 says, for to be carnally minded, that's another word for the flesh, is death. That means it produces deadness in our lives, dead works. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind, the natural mind, the unsaved mind, the old man, is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so the they who are in the flesh cannot please God. What that tells us is that we have the capacity as Christians to not please God. We have the capacity to not be subject to the law of God. That's serious stuff. And we have a choice to make. Where are we going to set our minds? Where are we going to yield our members? It was refreshing to me a few months ago meeting with a, a fellow regularly. He's a new Christian. And we came to a, a, a point in our study on obedience and submission to the will of God. And he looks at me and says, you mean there are Christians who don't? I mean, you know, I kind of shocked me and sat back. And I said, well, you're looking at one. Because sometimes we don't. We don't always. That's just honesty, isn't it? Before God. And when we walk in the flesh, we're not pleasing God. We might be moral. It doesn't mean we're necessarily doing anything super evil. We're just independent from Him. And God created us for a relationship. We call it being dependent on Him. We call it walking by faith. We call it enjoying Him. And that's where we set our minds. And we need to recognize that we have that capacity to walk completely independent of God. And it's at that moment... that God turns to discipline in our lives, doesn't he? Rather than simply instruction and enjoyment. And so we have the Spirit of God who's at work in our lives. We're told in 1 Corinthians 3.18 that as we look into the perfect law of liberty, we look into the Word of God, and we look in the mirror of the Word of God, that the Spirit of God transforms us into, into his same image. In other words, when we observe Christ in the Bible, it's the Spirit of God who changes us. And that's an amazing thing. Because we just saw in Romans chapter 7 that we don't have the capacity in ourselves, ability in ourselves, to change. But we do change as Christians. It's not us. It's the work of God. It's the power of God. It's the power of the Spirit who somehow takes the things we read in the Bible, we meditate on, think on, we set our minds, and He makes it real in our lives. He changes us. He changes our attitudes and appetites and so on to where the Word of God then becomes a light to our feet and to our path. And so we have in these four things... For us, a new freedom, a new man, a new guidebook, and a new power. All based upon the victory Christ has won for us on the cross. Because God always wins. He's a God of victory. You know, in the Old Testament, I've mentioned this before, in the Old Testament, God would point out to Israel that though they were a more of a physical people oriented to physical blessings, and when their physical blessings were absent, when there was sparseness, is a term the Bible uses, it was because their relationship with God was sparse. And I think that pictures our Christian lives. When our Christian walk is sparse, when our time with the, with, the Lord, with the Lord in His Word, in prayer, in submission to Him is sparse, then we're going to have sparse lives. 
God wants the Christians to be characterized as abundance. That's what he told them back in Malachi and, and Haggai. He says, this, you, know, you should be known as, as, as those who have abundance because they have a God who abundantly supplies. And so God, has, God is abundant in our lives. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 says, well, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and so on. And that's a life we are free to enjoy. So when we consider freedom, not only do we rejoice in the spiritual freedom that has been purchased at the cross in our freedom from the penalty of sin and the assurance of eternal life through faith in Christ, but we are to claim discover and realize that freedom because the power of sin has been broken. We've been emancipated. We've been made alive. We have the power of God. We have the enabling of the Spirit. And the question is, are we living like freed ones? Or are we choosing to live like enslaved ones? It comes down to a choice. Because the problem in our lives is not with God, it's with us. God in His grace has provided all that we need for life and godliness. And that's a life we can enjoy. In our study in 1 Peter, we saw in chapter 4, verse 1, says this, Therefore, since Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What that means is Christ has no longer has anything to do with sin. He experienced it once on the cross. He paid for its penalty. He broke its power. He rose from the dead victoriously. And Peter says we should be armed with the same mind, that sin is in our past. We no longer live there, walk there, and when sin inflicts us, we confess it and we move on and, and learn to walk in the victory he has afforded us. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And Christ died and won that tremendous victory so you and I can overcome that in our lives. So thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, tonight, this morning we looked at some basic things once again that you provided for us in, our gra in your grace. But Father, these are such eternal and dynamic laws, principles that you've provided for us, the gifts of grace that you've given to us in order for us to live as you intended, to live right lives, victorious lives, fruitful lives, abundant lives in the life and love of Christ. And we're thankful for that. Thank you for the freedom you secured from us, for, for us. We no longer have to be enslaved to the destructive influences of sin in our lives. Instead, we can find healing and rescue from the brokenness that we experience. And in order to do that, you provided for us new life, the new man in Christ. You've given to us your word, the living word, the powerful word, which empowers and enables our lives in the hands of the Spirit of God, the source of power that you've given to guide us through life. May we learn to walk in these things. We pray that we might be the victorious children that we ought to be. And may you receive the glory in Jesus' name.